at 1 Samuel 7, and we're going to read verses 2 through 17. So we're only skipping the first verse, verses 2 through 17. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mishpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mishpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day, and he said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mishpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mishpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mishpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth Car. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mishpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged the Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mishpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. You may be seated. As we pick up here in the text, one quick thing to notice is that 20 years is a long time. 20 years is a long time. 20 years, for some of our college students, would be essentially their whole life. Your whole life, one verse. Not much said there in verse 2. There were all kinds of other things going on in the world at this time in verse 2. This is 1070 to 1050 B.C. Over in Egypt, Ramses XI, king of Egypt, dies. The third intermediate period of Egypt begins. No mention of that. If we go over towards Greece and Athens, Cadrus, king of Athens, died after a 21-year reign. He was defeated by Dorian invaders. He was the last king, they said, in that area to have absolute power. No mention. 
as far as on a cosmic scale, between 10, around 1050, a little bit before that, there was a period where, all, where five of the planets apparently all lined up. No mention. The Bible doesn't say anything about it. The point is, a lot can happen in 20 years, but we get none of it. We just get a big rift, a big rift of time here that God chooses to say nothing about it. And somehow, we can see that the Bible, so there are times where we'll spend a, multiple chapters about just something that happens in a short amount of time, or like this, we get a big gap where nothing is said. And there is an important point in that, that until Israel repents about the ark and about the relationship with the Lord, things are kind of on hold there. But when they do, things start happening again. And here's what we see. The beautiful thing about this is that even though Israel disobeyed, and even though, if we go back a few chapters ago, they just threw the ark out into battle, said, ah, good luck, charm, we'll win because the ark's out there. Even though they made fools of themselves that way, and then even though the ark was captured and they just left it in Philistine hands for seven months, and then even though the ark comes back to them completely by supernatural sovereign hand of God, they just let it sit there for 20 years over here on the sideline, even though they do that, God is still their God. They are still his people. And as soon as they reach out in repentance, he was waiting. He was waiting. And he's there for them. And we're going to see that in this passage. So maybe, maybe there's somebody here. Maybe some of you fit into that even though category. Where you've been stale in your relationship with God for weeks, months, years. Maybe you've just kind of left him on the sideline. We're going to see there's something for each person in that category, just as God was dealing with the Israelites here, that there could be a change for you today. Second point is on repentance. Back in chapter 6, in chapter 6, the Israelites had mourned, they were sorry, because God dealt them a serious blow. They suffered, so they mourned, they're sad. But that's not true repentance, just feeling sorry because you're hurting. In verse 3, we see what looks to be, what appears to be, real repentance. Samuel sees it on the part of the people. And he figures, this looks real, but I don't know. That's between you and the Lord. It's between you and the Lord. He doesn't know for sure. If we go back, or from Samuel's time, move forward... Uh, over a thousand years, 1,500 or so years. Great Awakening. Powerful period in American history. Jonathan Edwards, maybe the most significant American preacher, he's involved in the Great Awakening. He's preaching decisions, people coming to Christ all over the place. It appears to be real. Why did I say appears to be? Because it's the same kind of language he used. He spoke of hopeful evidences people being hopefully converted and that they seemed to have satisfying evidences of the work of the gospel. And that's him referring with humility to those who are being converted under his preaching. So Samuel, in the same way, is hopeful here. 
But he said to the people, you look there in the text, he says, if, if you are repenting, if, then you need to say what you mean, and you need to mean what you say. There needs to be something tangible about your repentance. It's not that you're earning anything with God, but there should be evidence of it if it is true repentance. So he says, if you are returning, if you are returning, and in the Hebrew, that word returning has a very relational aspect to it. If you are coming back into relationship with the Lord, then here's what's going to happen. And that returning is not just a mechanical, transactional kind of thing where you do this, God will do this. And we can see that kind of relationship fall apart. If you, if you look at a marriage, a couple comes together, they're married, they have each other's heart at the beginning. There's a heart relationship there. But often, through the years, what can happen is, maybe the husband, he becomes very efficient in his job. The wife becomes very efficient in her job, in taking care of the home or working outside the home, whatever it can be. Very efficient. And then, maybe children come along. Efficiency there, too. They can get the kids to school, get them to school activities, sports, music, whatever. They get very efficient. But after a while, they realize, whoops, I didn't marry a butler. I didn't marry a maid. Where's the romance in this? We had each other's heart at the beginning. And this is not true relationship. And to be honest, just, just yesterday... Uh, kind of thinking through this even. I, I called Donna yesterday morning because we had had one of those weeks where, boy, we're all over the place and said three words, three words, no matter what. <laughs> said no matter what, we're going out on a date uh, tonight because we need the time together. Doesn't matter if it's 11.59, daylight savings, we've got to get out, we need time together. So ended up being good. We needed that. We can slip absolutely into that pattern of just the transactional, the mechanical, where we're, we're, we're losing sight of each other's hearts. That's what Samuel was saying. This relationship, say in marriage or whatever, with the Lord, this is a relationship. And if you're returning, there needs to be that relational aspect. And here's how you're going to evidence it, Israelites. Here's what you need to do. You're going to need to put off something you're going to need to put on something. And so there in the text, he tells them what to put off. He says, put away, put off the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth. You need to put them away. Now, with Baal, if we had a picture of Baal here, one of their false gods, likely we'd see him with his right arm raised, holding a spear or a thunderbolt. Okay, because he commanded the weather. He could command storms. He could command rain. They needed him in the ancient Near East. In his left hand, he would probably have been holding on to a tree, blossoming, growing, because he had command over the fertility of the soil. So the people in that community needed him. The pagans worshipped him because of that. And the Israelites had messed up too. They'd gotten into that as well. They dissimulated the worship of those false gods as well. And Samuel said, get rid of it, put it aside. We may think here in suburbia where we don't struggle going meal to meal, day to day, uh, that that's much of a struggle. But back then it was. 
it doesn't rain, they don't have food. You could see this if we were in, say, a third world country where a lot of times you share the gospel with somebody, they'll, they'll claim to convert to Christ, but they may also have their little idols in the back room because, yeah, you give me Jesus, he'll get me to heaven, but I still need my idols to pray to because if it doesn't rain and my garden doesn't grow, I don't eat, my family won't eat. So they'll assimilate the two. Samuel's saying here, it does not work that way. You must put those aside. And so for us, how do we relate when we don't have that struggle again day to day with food? Okay? Well, God says, you mean I'm supposed to give? I'm supposed to tithe to God first before everything else? God says, yes, I'll take care of you. Or that I'm supposed to tell young people in a relationship, I'm supposed to tell this person that I'm going to remain pure in this relationship. I'm not going to give in. I might lose them. God says, yes, it's not worth it. I'll take care of you. Trust me. There's only one way. There's only one way, God is saying here. God realizes that there are plenty of other options that are more attractive, more compelling, look more productive, but they are not the one that he chooses for us. So the thing is, the people agree. They agree. We're kind of surprised. The Israelites were so used to them not repenting. They do. In verse 4, and we shouldn't gloss over this, they plain and simply repent and change. People of Israel put away the Baals. They put, apart, put away the Ashtaroth. Okay? So they do what they're supposed to. They repent. They put on, they put off the false gods. They put on the worship of the one true God. And we don't see mention of Baal for another 200 years till King Ahab. So there was true repentance going on here. So in one sense, we should wrap it up here. Good news, let's go home. This was a good message. Yay, Israel. Okay? But the thing is, we actually get more good news. Okay? So we're going to stay in this. There's more good news. In this next scene, Samuel gathers the people. He says, all right, if you're going to follow through on your repentance, let's see what it's going to look like. He gathers the people together. They're confessing their sins. Pours out water on the ground. Now you can read a lot about that. Not sure what the water symbolized or why they were doing that. Probably something with uh, repentance and cleansing. But they do that. We don't see much evidence of that elsewhere. But the important thing is, let's focus in on their repentance. What was going on? The people could have said, all right, a couple chapters ago, the sons of Eli, they messed us up. They're the reason our leaders messed up, sent the ark out there, lost the ark. It was those sinners. They're gone. We're sorry it happened, but it was their fault. Okay, that would be blame shifting. They don't do that. They don't blame somebody else. They instead confess their own sins. They own their own sins. Don't blame somebody else. But then there's another thing that's going on here, too. There's a corporate nature of the confession. And we see that when we do a corporate confession, we're confessing our sins together and individually. And part of that together is even acknowledging, maybe I didn't sin in some area, but we did or you did. We sinned then. It's a we thing. Right? We're together. 
and we're confessing that together. And that's what the people were doing. We see scriptural examples of that as well. Job offered sacrifices in case his other family members had sinned. Ezra prays and he repents of our sin. Even though he hadn't sinned, he repents of our sin. Daniel does the same thing in Daniel 9 when he says, we have sinned. There's an owning of the people, of the community, of other believers around them of the sins. We see, um, if any of you have read kind of a modern day example of that, Donald Miller and Blue Light Jazz. If you think of that book, if you've read it, there's probably one scene that stands out. He's part of a, a Christian community on a, on a very wild campus out in Oregon on Reed College trying to minister to the people there. They say, well, all right, we're going to set up a confession booth here on the campus. And so most of the group says, you think these guys are going to come in and confess to us? How in the world is that going to work? They say, no, 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 no. We're going to confess to them. So finally a guy walks in, wanders in. What, what is this? What is this? You want me to confess to you? He said, no, no. We as Christians want to confess to you. We haven't been loving. We haven't been kind. We've been bitter. We've been self-righteous. Will you forgive us? So the reaching out there and the corporate nature saying we haven't been what we ha should have been makes a profound uh, difference in that person's life who hears that confession. So we see the importance over and over of repentance. And if you're following along in your, your outline there, the quote there, John Wesley said, John Wesley said, you can't get to the door of faith. You can't get through the door of faith without first coming across the porch of repentance. There's the repentance and the faith that go together. Sinclair Ferguson said they're essentially twins. Repentance and faith are twins. The life of the believer is such that we are believing penitents and penitent believers all the way to glory. So we don't just repent when we're converted, we repent all along. As we find our sin, we repent, we receive grace, we turn it over to the Lord. Repentance is a lifelong exercise. Our next R is the result. We see the result of their repentance in verse 7. In verse 7, the people repent. What's the result? In one sense, nothing has changed. Okay? They repented. Nothing's changed. Right. The enemy is still there. Here come the Philistines. The Philistines come to attack. Nothing's changed. Can you relate? Lord, I'm being faithful. I'm walking with you. I'm repenting. I'm trusting you. I'm putting off and I'm putting on. So now, what's in it for me? Take away my bully. Take away my temptation. Take away this circumstance I'm wrestling with over and over. And God says, no, my child, I'm good. I'm powerful. And my grace, my grace is sufficient for you. So nothing has changed. But everything has changed. This time, this time the people are in a different relationship with the Lord. They don't just throw the ark out there. They go to prayer. And they're desperate in prayer. And it's a mess. They're praying. 
Sam, are you praying? Yeah, I'm praying. You, you keep praying. Don't stop. They're all praying. And it's a mess. But it's a beautiful mess. It's a beautiful mess. Because that is their only hope. Psalm 147 says, The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. So John Piper says, that's the gospel. When our hope, our sole hope, our only hope is in God alone, then we're resting on the gospel. And so that's what the people are doing. It's a beautiful mess. They're crying out. They're showing trust. They're showing repentance. They're showing acknowledgement of who God is and of who they are. And God's part, he answers. God answers. He's faithful. He's there. He's attentive. He's listening. And this passage speaks again. So I was thinking, well, prayer is futile. It doesn't matter. He doesn't hear. He doesn't care. God hears here. And he absolutely shows up. The battle is won in half a verse. Half a verse, the battle is won. God sends. He thunders against them. Remember, again, think of Baal. Why did he choose to do it this way? Because Baal was the god of the thunder, god of the weather, all that. God says, no, this is, this is a cosmic battle, and I'm going to show that I reign, I rule, I control the thunder. I'm going to scare these Philistines. I'm going to scare the Baal out of them, and they run off all over the place. Okay? So he thunders, he does that on purpose. Now, you might say, yeah, I see that. God showed up. And you get away with their enemies. No fair. Why doesn't he do that for me? Why didn't he do that for me? A couple answers to that. First, yes, he did do that for Israel this time. But the enemies don't go away. They're going to be back in a few more chapters. So there's always going to be that relationship where are we desperate for the Lord as our only hope? Again, the gospel. Until glory, we're not done. We're not fully sanctified. We're going to continually have to rely on the Lord. Second one would be this. Maybe, maybe he has done it for you at times, but our eyes aren't seeing it. Oh, it was just this circumstance, or they did that, and it wasn't God. No, God is sovereign. He's in control of everything. And sometimes we need our eyes open. Lord, open my eyes that I see your angels at work around me, that I see you answering my prayers, that I see you care. So application for that point, God can, but often does not remove all the obstacles and the temptations. He can, he often doesn't. We know that, you know that. What would happen with your heart if he did? What would happen with your heart if he just took them all away? Think of your biggest obstacle right now. What would happen if it, were, if it were removed? What would it do with your fellowship with the Lord? What would it do? Would you still be desperate in prayer? Would you still be needing Him? Well, back to the story. The Israelites, they step in as well. God smashes them. The Israelites step in. They get a little piece of the action there in verse 11. The men of Israel go out from Mishpah. They pursue the Philistines. They take part at the end in kind of the cleanup as well. Almost can picture a scene like Lord of the Rings over on the side, Legolas and Gimli arguing over, well, I killed 31. No, I got 32. That was my error. We did it. I did it. No. And Samuel says, whoa, 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 whoa. Guys, stop. Come over here. 
What, Samuel? A rock? What are you doing? Samuel says, see this rock? Now, the, the Israelites knew about rocks. Rocks had various pur uh, purposes. The rocks could be territorial boundaries. Each of the 12 tribes had a rock. Sometimes they had a commemorative purpose, and that was the case here. This rock was very important. Samuel said, this rock is an Ebenezer. Ebenezer, they would quickly have remembered, was, if you go back a few chapters earlier, at Ebenezer is where they got smashed and lost the ark. So there's a reason God wants us to see this connection, this bookend between chapter 4 and now chapter 7 with this name Ebenezer. Previously, they relied on themselves and were defeated. And Samuel says, this is a stone of help. Thus far we have come because the Lord did it. It's not you guys arguing over how many you guys, you Philistines, you killed. The Lord did this. He thundered. He made this happen. He did it all. We have reminders like that. We have plenty of reminders. Go to D.C., the Washington Monument, Vietnam War Memorial, New York Statue of Liberty. These great memorials that call to mind great things, bring tears to people's eyes when they come to America see the Statue of Liberty. But those are testimonies, in a sense, about men. This was a testimony about what God had done for the people. And Samuel wanted them to see, this is a line in the sand. This is a turning point. This is meant to be different. And I think of back when I was 15, so baseball, growing up in New Orleans, we were on a baseball team. And that summer, we won our district uh, championship, our state championship, then the regional in Oklahoma, then we go to New York for the Babe Ruth World Series. And we get there, and we are excited because it's going to be, it's just a, a, it's a huge festival. There's parades, everybody thinks you're the, the best thing in the world, and you just eat it up. But our coaches gave each person a baseball. They said, hey guys, when you're not on the field, you've got to have this baseball. If we ever catch you without the baseball, you're going to be fined. So you thought, okay, well, that's kind of awkward. Everywhere you're going, whether it's a picnic or whatever, on the parade, you got this baseball, you just kind of, and there was a point to it. You couldn't lose sight of it. You had to feel it. You knew, I'm not just here for the party. I'm here for a purpose. The coach was saying, you're here for a purpose. The purpose is to play baseball. Enjoy all the other stuff, but this is like a stone. This is a remembrance of what's happened up to this point and of where you're headed from here on. Keep your mind on what matters. Keep your mind on what matters. That Ebenezer was a powerful reminder for them to look back and see what God had done and a reminder that we are the Lord's and we're living for him this and onward. So verses 13 through 17, the last R, what we'll call the ride, the ride. Samuel's a pastor, and he's kind of traveling around to the, the, the areas, essentially the churches around him. He was kind of like a New England pastor in, in early uh, American colony days where you'd have a pastor who would ride a circuit and visit various churches and care for them. So he's a good pastor, and he's going to kind of fade a little bit out of the picture. He, we're still going to see him with David and with Saul and that kind of thing. But his importance is going to kind of fade out a little bit as the kings come and we transition to that. But we see here that Samuel finishes well. Samuel 
finishes well. And we have that encouragement. So that's our final R, the ride. But I want to step back for a minute. As a conclusion, I want to step back. When the Bible gives us reminders, like it did here, with this picture of repentance, with this Ebenezer, we need to take them to heart. We see that with sacraments. Sacraments, the Lord's Supper and Baptism, those are powerful reminders that we need to take to heart. There are pictures of that all over the place. Robert Robinson, who wrote the hymn, Come Thou Fount, a couple of uh, pieces that he wrote from that. He says this, coming from this passage, Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come. So there's a looking back up to this point. Here's what you've done, Lord. And I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. So he raises his Ebenezer, just as Samuel did, knowing of God's grace to him and where he's headed after that. So we as Presbyterians, we don't typically do altar calls. So I pause for a minute. I'm not going to do that to you. Make you a little uneasy. So then when I ask you to do something, it won't be as big a deal. But I think we would be amiss if we didn't have a chance to respond to this passage. When God gives us something like this, a picture of repentance like this, and a picture of an Ebenezer, he's calling his people to respond. He's calling us to respond. And to say, Lord, where is something in my life that I need to repent of, that I need to put off and that I need to put on, just as you called them, you call me to do that as well. So as I'm, as I'm preaching this, I had to deal with this myself this week, so I'm not just throwing it out there to you, but just saying this is a we. So, so I've spent time in that myself as well. But I want to call us as a congregation, simply this, where are you going to say, Christ, it's because you are so glorious. It's because you're my rock. It's because you've delivered me in the past, thus far to now. What is it that you're calling me to put off? Because putting on you is infinitely better. What is it? What is the idol? What is the sin? What is it that might even be good, but it's not the best? What's not of you that I need to put aside and deal with that this morning? So I'm going to close this. I'll let you pray silently for a bit, and then I will close this in prayer as we seek what is it that the Lord would call us to repentance and to embracing Christ and his grace. Let us pray.